The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Storyblocks. It's the first and only subscription-based stock media company that offers unlimited downloads of member library content for a modest annual fee of just $149 per year per site, while providing its contributing artists 100% of the sales revenue for their photographs, video, or audio. To find out more, visit storyblock.com forward slash candid. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Recently, I had the opportunity to attend and participate in the Miami Street Photography Festival. It's an event that I've been wanting to attend for a couple of years now, and I'm so glad we could finally make it happen. If you've never attended, make sure to put it on your calendar for next year. It's a great event that shouldn't be missed. Not only did I get to see some exceptional work on exhibit and meet some very talented photographers, I was also able to conduct two panels that I recorded to share with you here on The Candid Frame. The first panel revolved on the topic of street photography in New York City, a city that has been the focus of photographers from the beginning of the medium. Sharing the stage with me were Lorne Wells, Richard Sandler, Joseph Michael Lopez, and Larry Fink. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to uh, Miami. I'm welcoming myself to Miami. I haven't been here in years, uh, but I'm so glad to come out here at the uh, invitation of Juan and everybody on staff here. Uh, it's a wonderful event, and I'm really glad to be part of it. And uh, I'm particularly excited to come to Miami to talk about New York, uh, which should be should be really fun. Um, I, I am fascinated by. Uh, New York for a variety of different reasons, especially, but especially photographically. Uh, it's been the source for some amazing images by uh, some legendary photographers going back, way back to the history of photography. Uh, but one of the things that really fascinates me about the legacy of photography that comes out of there, especially with respect to street photography, is when photographers are able to make very personal work. And I think part of what uh, appeals to me are street photographers who are able to photograph community, particularly their own community. And one of the things about uh, New York, uh, as small as it is, there's a great range of diversity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of class, in terms of culture, which is just rich fodder for any photographer. But what I wanted to do is to start the conversation is I wanted to hear about at what point did you find that you could make more personal images of the city rather than just making images that were aesthetically pleasing? And I'm, I was wondering how community tied into your ability to be able to do that. Uh, so would anyone like to, to start answering that? I started taking single photographs, walking around New York City, like so many photographers. And I was getting bored, and I really didn't know why. I thought it was because I just wasn't seeing correctly. But the truth was, I was tired of just doing good composition and hitting on the veneer. Uh, so my first experience was when I went to Coney Island. And that's a community in itself, but everybody's shot there before, so how do you make it personal? And I didn't think I could, but I was just going there to just check it out and have some fun. And I ended up connecting on a level that was really resonated with me, finding community amongst all these different people. And the, the community was, it was a connection. It was just seeing the um, humanity in everybody. Mm -hmm. And that community, uh, Coney Island is just like any other place. Um, and I brought that back to 
the city streets. I was able to connect that on the subway, looking for that on the city streets. So that's how it started for me. It just, it's like you see it when you know it, you, you, you know it when you see it. Right. And um, I tapped into it. I said, oh, that's what that feels like. That's what I want to see. Hello for you, Joseph. I'm f- Hello. Hi. I'm 44. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough question. This, I, at first, I, I was thinking in my head, why don't we uh, define what community is? Because I actually, it's, I, I, like maybe this is a community mm-hmm. in progress, right? But New York City is more about, at least my experience in New York City. Well, first, let me step back. Everything I do is very personal. That's just how I am. So it's like, it's just now after almost 19 years of practice where I'm actually stepping outside with more conscious intention and working from a place where I'm able to read more of the sociological context and the, uh, and really get a sense of of, of questioning what is community. I I actually don't think New York is full of community. (laughs) There's neighborhoods, there's circles, but everybody's like, I mean, there's, I've got good friends in New York, you know. I met this guy in New York on the street. Well, yeah, actually, Mitch introduced me to him. But I'm longing for community. I, I, and I think New York's, there's maybe community, communities in the edges of the New York boroughs. But like New York, the hungry New York, that's like the density. and the, Dude, this is like dog-eat-dog. Dog. I mean, yeah, community. I don't know. Yeah. That's why I'd love to define what community is. My home is my community. <laughs> commune, community. People in New York today commune with obsessive, renegade drive to separate themselves from each other so they can make a profit. When I started photographing in New York in 1957, as a photographer, forget about the name, street photographer, it was on McDougal Street and there was a community of drug-infested beatniks of which I was one, but I was also a communist, of which they were none. And I photographed in the streets in a very intimate kind of way because there was nothing but intimate at that point in New York. We went off on the road, I did a a bunch of pictures which I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I came back, I got arrested for narcotics, what have you. And then I came back to New York in the 60s to photograph on the street as a quote-unquote street photographer. But then, before New York was so money-obsessed and rents were really cheap, community was indeed communing. There were ethnic neighborhoods in very, very, and I'm talking Manhattan now specifically, there are still ethnic neighborhoods, clearly in Brooklyn and the Queens and in the Bronx, but in Manhattan, not so much any longer. It's pretty much a beat the yup out of the sup. <laughs> Meaning, it's a fancy city with only money as an essence. In the workday of New York, if I were to go back to photograph now, still the same kind of ethnic things happen because they flow, the folks flow into the city in order to work in the offices and so on and so forth. So lunchtime and after all, back down to the subway, then the level of ethnographic coincidence can be layered and layered and layered. And then it empties out and we have people with suits and bouquets. How about for you, Richard? Well, I was, my first thought is that the community was the growing box of pictures that I was making, and the community existed in the boxes of pictures that mm-hmm. I was making. I certainly had many friends who were uh, photographers as well, and that was my community. But when I think about community in New York, the first idea that pops into my mind is the subway itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the subway. I did a lot of photographing in the subway. And just the wonderful uh, randomness of every car being completely different and unique, and we're all in that same car together, uh, vulnerable on some level, or uh, communing, shall we say, by eye contact or by lack of that. Uh, There's, you know, all kinds of little dramas that go on in a city the size of New York. And because it's so much larger than most cities, uh, you can really kind of... uh, Take, I've always, always found myself taking great solace in the randomness of it all. You know, the, 
the, um, the chance operation. So the subway is absolutely wonderful for that. And if you don't like the dramas or the, the vibe or whatever in one car, you can go into another. And that's another whole scenario, yeah. particularly in days past, or I should say decades past, when uh, New York City was, um, uh, you know, wilder than it is now. It's rather oh, yeah. tame. It, one of the fascinating things about photographing in New York for me is is just the almost chaotic nature of the city in terms of how it's constantly in flux, how you have this convergence of different people, different classes, different activities, all within a very limited space. For me, it's quite the uh, tightrope sometimes to have to walk to try to make images that not only look good, but are, that are trying to say something. What was, uh, what was the learning process for you? What was sort of the, sort of the linchpin that allowed you to not, to not only just make photographs that look good, but that express something in the midst of you know, such unpredictability, but such wonderful things that, that, that can happen in that city? My relationship to photography is kind of a coping mechanism. So I kind of, like I've been teaching in Miami for the last six, almost 16 weeks. Man, I miss New York's energy. You know, that thicket, melting pot. It's almost like kaleidoscopic to me, you know. It's just so dense and full of human action that you can lose yourself in that. But, or or <laughs> you can start a conversation anywhere. And it's up to you how, how you, you know. And for me, I don't know, man. It's just like something in me that makes me just, I can't stop. Like, it's like I have something I have to let out. Like, I've always want, I've, I've, I've had this thing where it's almost like I've been wanting to express myself and say something for so long, and the way I order the world is the, the, the frame, you know? I mean, if you step back, like, I, I originally wanted to be a filmmaker, you know? And I thought, like, well, you know, if I'm going to be a filmmaker, maybe I need to concentrate on the frame rather than 24 frames a second. So I, I jumped into filmmaking and then stepped back. And then photography as a practice, the act of photographing just swept me away. I mean. And I think for me, you said something that made me think of it. I think for me, it was loneliness. Um, New York is a lonely place. There's so many people, but because of that, it's also hard to manage. And I tend to be kind of a loner to begin with. So especially in the wintertime, like, oh my God, I, I need to connect. And so the camera was the perfect excuse. And I was craving a deeper connection. And again, I said just the composition. So I would come home with a photo where I felt somehow the subject and I saw each other. I saw something deeper and I saw myself and I felt that these were my friends or my my community. Uh, and so I got to know myself through my photos and I really started to appreciate my city a little more because we can all be cynical about New York, but there is a magic underneath. Even today, if I'm patient for it, I, it'll come. When, when you were, uh, Larry, and this is a question for you, both Larry and, and Richard, because you guys have been photographing uh, for quite a long time uh, in New York City, and you've seen it evolve and you sort of change. How has your connection to the city, especially through, through the lens of your camera, sort of changed and, and evolved as the city's changed? Well, in all, in all candor and, and honesty, I don't live in New York City. I live on a farm for the last 45 years in Pennsylvania. So a New York street photographer, I am not. Ah. I do come to New York for seeing people for business, and very, very rarely do I photograph on the streets of New York. I don't like the density. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't like the density either. I lived mostly at night, went to bed at six in the morning. <laughs> when I did go uptown to photograph the density and all the, the various kinds of interloping, interloping bodies and essences and triangulations and circles and whatever else that was coming, coming down the avenue like a cascading ball, you know, I would take a pride or take my pleasure in trying to organize something which frightened me immensely. Also, back in the day when social history was being written in a very different way than it's being written today, with Malcolm X and Martin King and 
the Harlem riots and the jazz scene with Thelonious Monk and Charlie Mingus and Charlie Parker and Coleman Hawkins and everybody else like that, the camera was a license to get in close, to take privilege, to be on the absolute cusp of the scene. And so it wasn't so much street photography, but it was photography of, of situations which were culturally, you know, impregnating within my own self and also the culture itself, you know. I didn't get in, involved with the CBGBs and the punk. I was always been a jazz fan and a blues fan, so I stayed pretty much in a parochial place, you know. Now, of course, I work professionally as a photographer for a long, 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 long time. I'm photographing for 63 years. So I would, I would work the streets, for sure, under assignment any time. I was working for New York Magazine, for Vanity Fair, for Esquire, for who, whoever knows. Back in my heyday, or the heyday of magazines it was, it turns out to be. Um, I was working all the time on the streets, but very specifically towards a given goal. However, talking about being personal, just like Joseph here, I'm never not personal. I can't help myself. I'm obsessive. So even if I'm working for money, obviously conscious of the, of the client's needs, most important is my own need to master what it is that's in front of me, which is uncontrollable. Well, um, I'm a New York City street kid, so I did grow up uh, on New York City's streets. I grew up in Queens in a, you know, a fairly... Uh, upwardly mobile um, suburb called Forest Hills but uh, it was very close to the city and starting at about about age uh, nine I would say I began taking the subway into the city by myself or with my friends to go into Chinatown to cop firecrackers or to go to uh, Times Square to the the, the uh, Penny arcades and movie theaters, and maybe get into the peep shows if you were lucky, or go to a Hubert's Flea Circus, which was on 42nd Street. And my parents had no idea that I was doing this. I had a, a very intricate double life. I was also, unfortunately, an addicted gambler at a very early age, but that's, that's a few years later. Uh, all that to say, uh, it was just an incredibly lively place. And I really loved peering into the adult world. Uh, recently, I saw, a couple of years ago, I saw uh, Dan Arbus's pictures of the Hubert's Flea Circus, which was this wonderful sideshow on 42nd Street. And I saw the people that, that she was photographing, I saw them as a kid. So um, I you know, grew up with kind of a street kid's attitude because, you know, you needed to, like, stand your ground and, you know, claim your turf or whatever. And, and uh, uh, also, I was, like I said, I was a gambler, a pool player, you know, and a card player and stuff. So, you know, I had a lot of, you know, kind of freewheeling friends like that and grew up in that culture. So... Um, yeah, so for me, the streets of New York City was so personal because that was my world, you know, and I knew people. You know, I mean, I, 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 if I didn't know them, I felt like I knew them. So um, I, it gave me a certain facility when I started street photography. But when I started street photography, I did definitely have in mind a goal to pick, as in P.I., Q-U-E, you know, burst the bubble of America. I, I really wanted to make political statements with my pictures and to expose the um, duplicity of the culture. Uh, actually, prior to being a photographer, I was an acupuncturist, so that word pick actually had meaning in that context, you know. And I was doing that, in a sense, though, with a camera now. I was bursting a bubble with a, with a needle, almost. So, anyway, that's just my particular story. You know, that's kind of fascinating, this, this, the idea of having uh, sort of an intentionality with respect to the pictures that you're creating. Because I think right now there's an interest in street photography, but I think uh, a lot of it revolves around the singular photograph. You know, people trying to make a, one single photograph that looks really good without necessarily having a context for it. And what's uh, really interesting about some of the work that I've seen th this weekend and I've seen elsewhere are when photographers choose to use 
choose to use this street photography aesthetic to express something either uh, about the city that they live in, the culture that they live in, or something about themselves. Like Donato is probably a perfect example, someone who spoke earlier today, who is really coming from a personal place, but who's using all the skills and attributes that you learn as a street photographer to be able to do that. Um, could any of you sort of speak to the idea of finding something to focus on? Uh, you just mentioned, you know, in terms of what your goals were for, for, for the images, but does anyone have anything to contribute with respect to how they took what they were learning on the street and sort of applied it to maybe a singular subject matter or a theme or idea? I'm doing that now. Um, it's more of a documentary project, though, but it's something I learned through street photography, which was... Uh, this connection to, I'm a humanist at heart, and I like seeing the commonality in all of us in the diversity. Wherever I am, and New York is a microcosm of the world to me. Um, and I'm doing that now with uh, stickball in East Harlem and the Bronx. Um, and I'm finding that mo these men, mostly men, who are really brawny and tough on the outside, and have been in prison and ex-heroin addicts and so forth, um, are really just human beings who want to love their kids and, it, and, and whoever else and enjoy life, just like I do. And I'm trying to capture that in, through this documentary. So. Um, Around 2006, seven, was it kind of like a big shift for me spiritually, intellectually, and just like, just at, at that time, I'd kind of realized I had work to do, internal work, and I turned from, a, you know, I, first, let me just say, I'm a, I'm a little up against a fence with this like capital S street photography kind of like label, um, which is kind of like massified right now. It's like this massive thing. It's like a big hashtag or something. I've, I, you know, I've got a background of like my personal evolution in the city. I decided a long time ago that, um, you know, I came into the city working for a big photographer, like a big commercial fashion photographer. And he, my experience with this guy kind of changed. It just made me make a, a really big uh, shift and uh, I decided to go on the street to, to, to discover who the hell I was, you know? But around 2006 and seven, I took my, I started looking at myself in the mirror even, I just had to. And at that point I, I decided, well, I gotta figure this out. Like I have something to say, this is not right. So I, I work like in that like personal reportage way where I'm like photographing candid, experiences or you know whatever comes to me you know I, I frame it but I'm also conceptually sometimes addressing through collaboration uh, s certain questions I, I, I may have and uh, I've been working on a project that I still haven't really finalized that looks at abortion and civil liberties through collaborative street encounters where I would go up to women and I would tell them, you know, what I was doing, and I would, uh, and I, you know, express my intention, and sometimes they would give me the time to photograph them, and they, they would actually tell me their story, and I was also carrying a notebook, so I would actually then even kind of like, doc, like in this kind of uh, stream of consciousness kind of exchange, have a document of like that experience that they had, internal experience. So your question was about intention, right? Or, and uh, it's, it's funny because, I mean, I work with so much intention and I feel like I'm really just documentary for, like a documentary artist. And, I'm, and not an artist, capital A, but just like a human being with a camera. Yeah. And I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to learn something new and, and I'm trying to understand what the hell's going on, you know, and how do you do that? Well, the camera's a tool that can actually drive that exploration. And it's a way to get close, like Larry has said, and, it, 
and it's a way to start a conversation. So my practice is very, very kind of like socially, but in its own way, because I'm not like a photojournalist, you know, and I'm not doing photojournalistic essays, but there's parts of my work that have a complete social, critical, like, it's like documentary research that I've created in my own way of teaching myself. That's probably why it hasn't been published yet, because it's just kind of like, it's, it's you know, it's working outside the frame in a way. You, you, you can't be put into a box. Right which makes a publisher, whoever it may be, a little bit skeptical because they can't put you into a product ratio. Yeah. You know, uh, but don't worry, your time will come. Um, <laughs> because, uh, because it's in inevitable because you're a terrific photographer. You know? Thanks, Uncle. And there you go. Um, uh, me, I'm, I'm, I'm just, as Lauren said before, she's a humanist. Well, I'm a humanist with a camera, as, she, as is she. And basically, I don't, I don't often photograph on the street in New York any longer, for sure. But when I did, and if I do, it'll be about intimate vignettes. I'm really very, very involved with trying to find the connectivity between peoples. I'm not terribly alienated myself any longer, even though there's good cause to be under the circumstances of our politics. But um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm 76. I'm happy as an elephant, um, if an elephant is happy. If, if At any rate, I, I am drawn to when people connect, and when, they, when they're soft and when they're gentle and when they're passionate, and that's what I'm drawn to. However, I don't photograph on the street and probably won't because these types of passionate moments, may it be lovers or arguers or what have you, I don't really feel like the, the idea of making a photograph is all that important. It's more important that these people just express themselves without putting my big fat, you know, camera, actually small camera, in their face. Because why would I want to bother anything so delicate and so precious and so temporal with a stupid act of photographing? Mind you, of course, I've been photographing a million pictures now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to working on a creative project, be it a video, a newsletter, a corporate report, or a podcast, so much of your time can be spent looking for secondary elements that will bring that project to life. With video, it can be a B-roll. For a PowerPoint presentation or report, it's illustrations or, or photographs. Whatever it is, the thing that can take up too much valuable time is finding the quality content that makes that project you're working on so hard truly shine. Storyblocks provides the perfect solution for that problem. Not only is it affordable, it also provides income for the content creators themselves. Storyblocks provides the perfect solution for that problem. Not only is it affordable, it also provides income for the content creators themselves, whether they are a photographer, videographer, or illustrator. That's because Storyblocks provides you access to high-resolution photo, vector, or audio, and they are all royalty-free. And for creators who contribute their work, it's also great because they enjoy 100% of the sales commission. To find out more, go to storyblocks.com forward slash candid to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149. To find out more, go to storyblocks.com forward slash candid to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash candid to download anything from thousands of images, video and tracks, and unlock discounts for millions more. For me, the, what you just mentioned, though, is, is one of the most fascinating and probably most elusive thing about uh, the nature of this kind of photography. I mean, uh, I'm increasingly feeling reticent about using the word street photography because I think it's kind of loaded. I think at one point this was more described as candid photography, you know, or just photography. Um, but one of the things about the street that I'm always uh, on the hunt for and an eye for is levels of human interaction. I think you see it in a lot of these shows, uh, a lot of the images that are in the show now, that you see a, uh, a connectedness, a reaction of people having relationships to each other, very intimate 
interactions in, in a public space. And I think, for me, that is at the heart of some of the best photographs. Um, and I, talk to me about being able to not just make those photographs, but to be able to recognize moments for that potential. Uh, because so much of what happens in the street is very transitory, right? There are people moving from point A from point B, but moments like that do happen. And I'm wondering, in your, in your guys' experience, whether how do you create situations where that can be revealed to you so that you can make photographs that show that humanity, that connectedness? Well, um, for me, I must say that street photography has always been an extension almost of a kind of athleticism because um, you walk down the street, you see 25 people coming towards you. Uh, there may or may not be one organizing element, but there's a split second when every head is clear, when every body is in the clear, and there's no person's body or head, uh, you know, overlapping on another one. So there are these moments, and I, to me, they're almost like they're, they're kind of ghostly, um, where uh, there there are these moments of perfection, and if you're quick enough, and that's why I'm saying, you know, it's an athletic, uh, 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 it's got athleticism built into it or having a first, a fast, a quick first step like a basketball player, you know. Um, for me, it's always been about courting chance, courting chance operation. And that's enough for me, that, that is wonderful. It's almost as if there's another level of reality and that, and that level is the photographic reality. Stopping time, stopping the flux of time and you know, holding up for an inspection uh, a certain moment that, you know, hopefully when they're good, uh, makes some sort of commentary upon the way we live, mm -hmm. uh, the way we interact with one another and so forth. And I'm a little bit uh, afraid of what's happening in street photography because there's a lot of, uh, like, easy juxtaposition type pictures where there's, you know, a guy with a red tie and somebody else with, 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 with red on and so forth. And I don't know, I find that a little bit easy. Um, and uh, so I, I think chance operation is really what, to, for me, has always, what, what has defined so-called street photography. Because uh, the more you do it, the, more, the better you get at seeing the, the, the pictures that really have meaning. And that's what you mentioned. You know, how do you get to the pictures that really have meaning? And of course, you know, 99% of them don't really work. And maybe 1%, maybe that's saying a lot, but 1% of them work even. George Bernard Shaw, before, before, long before roll film, said that uh, photographers are like codfish. They lay a thousand eggs or a million eggs in the hopes that one will be fertilized. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and that was before roll film. So I imagine what he would have said after roll film. <laughs> or the digital age, for that matter. You know. But this is another conversation. I don't want to take, the, take it down another road, but maybe for later. Uh, the environment, environmental impact of all of this image making, I think, at this stage in the ballgame, when uh, um, it looks like the, the planet is, uh, you know, rather imperiled by carbon in the atmosphere, one has to wonder whether all these pictures are doing any good, mm. you know, in a physical sense. How about you, Lauren? Well, I'm the opposite of you. I'm, I'm the slow turtle rather than the athlete that's ready to pounce. Um, Marlon Brando used to, supposedly used to sit in a storefront in Times Square and he used to just study people and all the little details and he, he mastered it and before I was even interested in photography I used to watch I, I'm fascinated I mean to me that's the best show there is and it's free so I like to watch and study and I think in doing that there's that moment you start to anticipate 
something because you get familiar with human relations. So mine is a little bit slower. Uh, but yeah, that's how I approach it. You're a turtle? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was a frog. <laughs> you know you, what a frog does, just like a turtle, is they sit and they watch. <laughs> Got it. Oh man, we are really aligned. You, you summed that up nicely, you heart, Larry. You have a harder shell than you, but I can jump. <laughs> so how about, how about you, Larry? How about developing this 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 sensitivity to such moments? How how did you uh, how did you, you your 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 practice of photography allow you to develop that sense of being able to capture such such intimate moments out in in, in the streets? Or anywhere, but uh... Uncle, what are, how about that that picture of the transvestite at night at Studio Fifty Four? How did you make that? I'm <laughs> in a very big hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Funny picture. I mean, the um, the magic of that picture is not an intimate moment. It's an intimate moment between absolute curves that go absolutely, you know, transcend. Excuse me, uh, permeate the frame. The curve of this thing and the curve of the hair and the curve of the little hand like that. So it's instantaneous, you know, sense, sense of, of visual metaphors being built upon, upon each other. And how I did that was in a nanosecond, because I was working in those days with flash, off camera, so on and so forth. And these characters flashed across my frame like that. She was chartreuse. I worked black and white, but I noticed. <laughs> She was chartreuse. And I thought, wow, look at these women. Well, I went home that night, actually most often did, drove right back home with my truck, developed the film right then and there, and even the contact sheets, and went to sleep at 6 o'clock in the morning, not before looking at the contact sheet, finding out in the next two frames over, there were a really huge set of genitals. I said, (laughs) my. Something I didn't see previous to form. (laughs) 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 Naive that I was, you know. So that was, um, yeah, anyhow. (laughs) That was an intimate moment in my dark room. Okay. (laughs) Joseph? Yeah, I I think uh, Henry Cartier-Bresson said something like, um, you have to milk a lot of cows and make a little cheese. You have to practice. I mean... For me, there's such an urgency inside me, like emotionally, and then there's like um, a kind of an impulsive, like reflect. Like I react to things pretty quickly, like physically. So my timing helps me, but it's uh, it's really just it, it, it's a contradicting situation here because here you are on the street or wherever, because you can make pictures anywhere. But it's about slowing myself down mentally and opening myself up and being aware and being open in a physical way where when I'm like on the street in public space, that I'm not getting in my own way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like physically, like what I'm saying in my body attracts people. And I think that awareness is, uh, I mean, it sounds weird, right? It's like, what am I saying? Arr. But it's, it's true. It's like, it's hard. Like when Richard was photographing on the streets of New York, like I wish I could travel back in time. That shit looked really, I mean, the, the social landscape was really interesting back then. Mm-hmm. The city now, you know, I'm going to say this, like, I, I, you know, I fluctuate between carrying my camera around my neck and announcing that I'm there. But I don't want to bring any more attention to myself than I have to. 60% of the time that I spend in the city, my camera's probably underneath my jacket, over my shoulder. And you may say, oh, well, that's problematic. But the social landscapes or the the cultural relationship to to recording devices or cameras in general, Mm -hmm. listen, like six, seven, eight years ago, not even, let's say four... Yeah, like six, seven years ago, there's no one on the streets of New York photographing. It's like, you know, I, I mean, of course, we were on the cusp of iPhone cameras and all this stuff, but this whole new renaissance of like, you know, interest in candid photography. 
So what I'm getting to is like, like you know, I, I kind of work a lot not announcing that I'm like here to photograph. So I'm, I'm sometimes using my camera hidden underneath my jacket. First of all, New York also is kind of cool for most of the year. So, uh, and then there's great summers, but um, you just have to, you have to have a drive in you, you know? Richard Sandler, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, makes Gary Winogrand look like a pleasure-seeking apolitical simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first. Pardon me. Mic drop. <laughs> it, you were saying something, uh, Richard, earlier about um, some of the images that are very kind of simple to make. And I think that one of the things that I'm always sort of challenge, trying to challenge myself is to try to take my pictures in directions that it hasn't, haven't gone before, which involves taking risks, risks, challenging myself, you know, trying to push myself to make pictures that I wouldn't have made a month ago or a year ago. And I think that that's intrinsic to being able to become a better photographer. And I think that gets lost in an age of likes and thumbs ups. You know, where people just want to create something that's going to be liked and give affirmation. But all of you have developed work that I don't think would be possible if you weren't pushing yourselves. So I'd like you to sort of speak to that idea about how do you um, find ways of pushing yourself? Or what drives you to push yourself to areas where you might not have gone before? Well, um, I would... I always felt that I wanted to up the level of my game as much as possible. Uh, I, I, you mentioned Gary Winogrand. I, I don't agree with what you said, but I appreciate it. Thank you, nonetheless. But, uh, but, but these are different, t they, were, they, they were different times. And even the fact that I was photo, I mean, Gary unfortunately passed away young and he died in 1984. But I did take a workshop with Gary. Uh, when I very first started photography in 1977 in Boston, I took a weekend workshop with him. And I have to say that I learned everything I needed, uh, that I needed to learn about how to comport myself as a street photographer just by watching him. Because he had such a joie de vivre, you know. He was, he was so comfortable out there. He was so relaxed. He, and he, he didn't jump at things. He didn't actually move around a lot. I, I photographed very differently than him. I mean, I'm, I, can, I, 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 I grew up being an athlete, so I, I, was able, I did have that fast. Well, I said you were pleasure-seeking. Ple he was pleasure-seeking, and you were, po you were political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you had to be more active well, if you had a but, point of view. Right, but Gary also was, was also bursting the bubble of American politics you know, all over the place as well. Uh, you know, in the, his public relations book, particularly, but um, but that wasn't even edited by him. That was that? I mean, he made those pictures, but who created that context was Todd Papa George. Papa George yeah. Like Papa George was like the brain in like editing a lot of Winogrand's work, right? Well, I've started out a I started off a, a, a malaise here against Winogrand. I didn't like Gary very much, but I think he's a brilliant photographer, no doubt. However. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm just saying, Richard. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, I'm that's sorry. okay. I, I, I think I might have lost my train of thought. But, um, uh, you know, when I was photographing, it, it was rather difficult. There were some very large shadows hanging over people of my generation. One of them is sitting right here. <laughs> and, you know, because so much great work had been done by Gary and Larry and Lee and uh, Frank and, and, and Arbus. So my generation of street photographers didn't get any, you know, uh, cred whatsoever because the powers that be, which it was essentially the Museum of Modern Art, and John Sharkovsky kind of closed the door on street, so-called street photography at that point. So, you know, this is all really new to me. The fact that I'm sitting here and people are saying, oh, I like your work, I like your work. Well, I never heard that in those days, ever, <laughs> once, except maybe once in a while by fellow street photographers. 
but and I had you know given up any hope, which was a good thing, because since I never thought that I would you know that 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 this would amount to anything in other people's eyes, I just kept doing what I had to do. So for me, street photography was you know like my own necessity. It was my shrink. I always called it, you know, that I learned about myself. When you look at your contact sheets. Uh, and this is a big difference in a way, I think, between digital and, and film photography. When you look at contact sheets, you really have this diary of your day, of your time on planet Earth as well. But just speaking you know, more narrowly, it's a diary of your day. And you look at things that you're noticing that you don't even remember that you're noticing them quite that way. And so the feedback that I constantly got from my own photographs made me, if you know, because I was being as honest as I could be about my own development as a human being, it was a way to, you know, see myself evolving. Uh, very similar to what Joseph was saying. And uh, so, but it's not the same, I'm, I'm afraid, uh, for, at least for me, it's not looking on a computer. I love holding a piece of photo paper and looking under a loop and you know, getting into a world, you know, you don't quite get that the same way, even if you enlarge it on a computer. I don't mean to get into the, the difference of the, between the two, but anyway. Uh, um, I, I'm going to add this. Not, um, so there's this amazing Jamaican man. His name is Ruddy Roy, and he's got a voice. And, but he revealed to me recently a little bit of his workflow, and I was just like, totally taken back and it kind of goes back to what Richard was just saying like now technologically like people are shooting digital and I shoot you know my black and white's like film and then when I shoot color it's all like a digital and uh, and I've been shooting this camera for almost 20 years but uh, Ruddy is going from like a Wi-Fi card straight to Instagram get that <laughs> his digital camera is like feeding right it's going like right to Instagram. I mean, how much, like, I guess the question I'm asking is, is like, are you interested in like living with your work and understanding what it may mean? Or are you just like feeding and feeding and eating and feeding and eating and feeding and liking and loving? Are, are you seeing anything? Are you seeing right? You know, I don't know. I mean, Ruddy's got a, like a, a really strong, um, social view of the world but i'm not i'm not too sure that that workflow is great for everybody you know and that's where we're at like as far as like digital or like photography it's that rapid it's like you should you should a picture and this thing goes right to like but what the hell do you know like what is that i don't know i i i can't work that fast yeah so how so getting back to the idea in terms of finding ways of challenging yourself or the importance of challenging yourself in your work. I mean, that, that, that whole social networking is, is a whole new dynamic to it. Yeah. But in terms of a personal level, how do you find the means by which to push yourself so that you can make photographs that are unlike anything you've created before? I think it's in, my, it's in me. It's embodied. It's just me, my character. Um, you know, before I was... A photographer, I was completely taken by surfing. That's all I did. And I was just obsessed. That's, that's all I did. And I was actually, you know, I had fun. And I was, I did well. You know, at a certain point where I had, I, I, you know, I grew up and I, I walked out of there. Listen, for me, it's, it's really looking at myself and, and working from a place where I'm challenging my fears, my uncertainties, like... Certain, to a certain point to where my wife is like, okay, enough. <laughs> you know, sometimes. You know, and that, and that, but that's, that's my way of being, you know, and it's, it's not going to work out for everybody, but I'm constantly wanting to push myself. I'm also aware of not wanting to repeat myself, um, and that's pretty hard with, you know, this kind of practice. But there is a way of working, and there's definitely a, uh, an urgency to kind of like put myself at risk. And if I'm uncomfortable, that's where I should be. Yeah. You, you make a really interesting point about um, 
sometimes the challenge is not so much what's happening with the camera as it's internal. Yeah. It's fear, it's self-doubt, it's anxiety. Yeah. Um, and then that, that sometimes is the thing that gets you, that you have to work yourself through in order to be able to get to the pictures. So Lauren, for you, same idea, but could you just riff on, on that idea? It's, for me, it's the boredom is the clue that I need, I, I try to push, when I get bored with my photos, forget the likes on Facebook, I don't care. I, when I don't feel something, I said, it's time to up it. It's time for me to dig deeper. But I end up pushing against something. I wrote about this once, and you told me, you should try getting high. <laughs> 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 I said, no, that doesn't work for me anymore. But what I realized is I can't be pushing. I can't fight that I have to let go. And last year, I spoke about this here last year, Richard Calvar looked at my work and he picked it up right away. He said, you're not playing enough. I said, oh my God, that's it. I'm playing enough. I'm trying too hard to get better rather than letting go and who gives a shit, let's be a beginner again. And that's really hard. And the better we get, or the better I get, the easier it is for my ego to get in the way. Mm-hmm. And when I'm stuck, I have no choice but to just give up. And that's when it's fun again, and that's mm. when I start to find a new way. That's gold. But that's, well, it's, it's, it's hard not, to it's, do. Yeah. It's not giving up, it's just being. Well, letting go. Just being. I mean, invariably, you repeat yourself over and over and over and over again because you are only simply yourself. You're not, original doesn't mean all a new, God forbid, you know, new idea every minute. It means origin is what original is, ma- is based on. And origin can be very, very simple. And the humanity or the humanism that you speak of, the kind of care and the kind of co- concerns that you have about observing people, you won't give that up to be original. You just have to be within it and you keep on moving. And sometimes in photography, which is a very, very interesting art form because it's about accumulation, not about you know, scintillating masterpieces, even though there are some, but basically it's an accumulation of the evidence of your being within the beings of all beings. And we just go forward. That's fantastic. Um, well... My last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners, or in this case, our audience, to explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? And we'll start with you, Joseph. You know, I'm at a point where I'm actually not looking at a lot of photography that much anymore, but there are, I'm actually looking at 20th century photography. I, there, all right, so there's this, someone who really surprises me a lot. He, he's this guy named uh, Gorgi Pinkahasahov. I beg your pardon. What? Gor, Gor, <laughs> could you spell that? He's like a Russian guy. Okay. Pinkahasahov. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, may be, I, be, I may be like really, really doing a disservice to his name, but it's, it's, it's Georgi Pinkahasahov. Georgi. What is it? Georgi. Georgi. There you go. And this guy's like sense of light and form and just candid, like visceral, weird pictures in public space are just like phenomenal. They're really inspiring. I mean, it's like, like the dude's on another planet or something. Um, I don't know, man. I'm drawing from film, poetry, a lot of journalism. I feel like sometimes I look at a lot of the stuff that comes out now and it's just so, it's tough. It's really tough. There's, it's such a, it's such a like, a, we're such in a moment where like skill is, it's de-skilled is like more valuable than skill, you know? And I'm just like, what? You know, I'm still, I don't know, man. Uh, um, that's a tough question. Mm-hmm. Larry? I don't look at pictures. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... I actually don't think I've discovered anybody new in a long time. Um, oh, actually, come to think of it. It's a book that Aperture just put, uh, put out called The Last Testament. It's a fancy little book. It's small, and it's about 
a photographer, uh, I think he's a Scandinavian photographer, I forget his name right now, quite frankly, who went out and found people around the world who thought they were the Messiah. And the book is interesting because it's all very much a lot of biblical text and stuff like that, and then some small biographies of these people and when they came into their own messianic you know, tendency, and then pictures of their followers. He's not a great photographer at all. He's a good tradesman. But there are times when he makes portraits of these people who are true believers in, the, in this new Messiah that starts to personify the nature if God is made in the image of man, or if man is made in the image of God, then when you look into the face of somebody who believes that they believe in God in the way that God is them, then you became them, them and you become God. Mm. Well, I'll find out who the name is, and I'll put it included in the show notes so people can... I think it's Jonas Bendixson. Jonas yeah. Bendixson. Not a great photographer, but he has the capacity to feel that transcendence in some of the portraits that he's done. Okay. And the book, the book is fascinating. Cool. Fascinating. Lauren? Her name is Joanna Toro, and I was at the Bronx Documentary Center a few weeks ago, and she was giving a presentation. She's from Colombia, and she was a photojournalist there. She was a staff photographer for a newspaper and some magazines, and she had received a lot of accolades in Colombia, and she was really on her way in terms of her photographic career. And she came to the U.S., didn't speak English, and came to New York and was taking English lessons. She couldn't get a job. And she became, um, she did the costumes. She started wearing a Hello Kitty costume in, New York, in Times Square. And there was a lot of, you may, she was in Lens Blog a few years ago. You may have heard her story or seen it. And she, where someone like her would have been photographing this as a photojournalist, she was part of the story. And she was literally taking pictures through the whole of the Hello Kitty mask to see how she was being perceived as an immigrant. And so she went from being high up there in her own country to really experiencing a whole different world. And it is so intimate and poignant. And um, so I would recommend her. That's great. Richard? Um, I would say um, that my uh, favorite uh, photographer uh, that I would recommend would be Jules Allen. I don't know how many of you know his work, but uh, Jules is a remarkable photographer. He has... uh, three or four books out. One of them is called, the hat, called Hats and Hat Knots. And it is about people wearing hats or not. And about, <laughs> and about haves and have-nots. He's a terrific photographer. And the other book of his that is remarkable is called In Your Own Sweet Way. And uh, Jules uh, is a black American man and he went to Africa and he photographed in Africa. He's a very, very charming man. And his photographs in Africa are just absolutely wonderful. I recommend you check out his work. It's really fabulous. He's, I guess, my favorite living street photographer. Yeah. Where is he living now? Jules lives in uh, Jersey City. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for those recommendations. Thanks for your time. And let's give him a hand. Thank you. Thanks to Lauren, Richard, Joseph, and Larry for sharing the stage with me. I also want to thank the team behind the Miami Street Photography Festival, all of whom made my time there feel so special. Te mando un abrazo fuerte. I hope to see you again next year. You'll find links to each of the photographers on the panel, as well as information on the Miami Street Photography Festival in the show notes. I'll also include links to books produced by both Larry and Richard. Check them out, and remember that any purchase that you make through our Amazon affiliate links help to support the show. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here on TCF. Thanks to Balumka from France and Slurms McKenzie from the UK for their five-star reviews. 
You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our donate button on the candid frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Eric McCullum for his recent donation. We really appreciate the support. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but now you can easily share your favorite episode on social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.